For the ones who get going when the going gets tough. And the ones who know we're tougher together. For the pathfinders breaking new ground. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as fast access to experts and 24-7 customer support. Because we know you have people depending on you. So you can always depend on us. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Welcome to How We Win. While we are celebrating our victories, there is more anxiety right now than ever. And of course, the best antidote to anxiety is action. There are seven days, just one week, until the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And the countdown to January 20th includes impeachment 2.0, securing the very safety of our Congress, and holding everyone involved in the seditious acts last week fully accountable. Today we are joined by counterterrorism expert and the author of Homegrown Violent Extremism, Dr. Errol Southers. We talk about last week's attack on the Capitol, how these groups have grown in America, and what community-based practices work to reduce the risk of domestic terrorism. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And, and this, this is How, how We Win. We have a program note before we get started to let everyone know about. We have one more show in what has been a long season one of How We Win. (laughs) We're going to do one. This this might be a historically lengthy season of any show. 83, uh, 84. It'll be 84 episodes of season one. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we have today's show and we're going to publish next Thursday an episode to talk about and celebrate the inauguration. Uh, and then we're going to take oh, a little hiatus. I'm guessing we'll have lots to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping it'll just be a nice celebration, but um, it's a it's a very tenuous time right now. So, um, But we're going to have two more shows for everyone. And then uh, you and I are going to take a little hiatus and come back in March with season two of How We Win. So just a program note for everyone listening We're going to take a little break for the month of February. Season two, how we win. Can't stop winning. How we keep winning. Yeah. Maybe we can get some some Twitter suggestions for for season two. Bigger, badder, and winning even more. No, let's see. That's why we need help (laughs) from our audience. (laughs) I'm sure they'll have great ideas. Um, If they even have time to think. I mean, listen... If you don't have time to get creative with and cute with name suggestions right now, you won't be blamed. There's so much going on that it really makes 2020 look like a walk in the park almost. We're seeing Trump and his followers become more and more frantic and extreme as we get closer and closer to the inevitable, which is a massive, relieving change in power. Yeah. I mean, the Republicans who like the they acted like clowns last week and pretended that they were going to be able to do something to stop this. And and God, I hope they I hope they're really having some come to Jesus talks with themselves. um, Yeah. About what happened. 
and they're culpable in, in this violence and the sedition too. Um, I, I feel like they're more than clown-like, although they are definitely clowns. Um, and there, there must be consequences for all of that. And there are right now we have impeachment 2.0. Trump is on mm-hmm. the cusp of being the first president in history to be impeached twice. And I don't know that the timeline favors him being removed from office before inauguration, but prevented from ever holding office again. Yeah, I mean, this is this is, you know, I think over the last four years, so many of us have suddenly become novice experts. (laughs) It's a little bit of a contradiction there on uh, the Constitution, (laughs) what it means and all the regulations that we have in our country. But the impeachment proceedings can go on past him leaving office. And if he is impeached a second time, it would enable Congress to vote on preventing him from holding any federal office again. So we won't see him popping up in the House or Senate or, God forbid, the White House again. Speaking of triggering, Mitch McConnell has apparently told associates that he believes Trump committed impeachable offenses and is pleased Dems are moving to impeach him. This is extremely triggering to me because that makes two weeks in a row that I have agreed with <laughs> Mitch McConnell. I know he makes he makes everything so hard because you're like, ew, he's right. And ew, it's Mitch McConnell. And I mean, he's waiting until he, he's at the end of the line. Yeah. You know, he, he's not going to be speaker anymore. And now he's kind of letting loose. Imagine what he could have done two years ago or four years ago to hold this maniac in check. He's he's so opportunistic and um, he wants Trump out of the Republican Party. And (laughs) I want Mitch McConnell out of the Republican Party too. Mitch McConnell has done more damage to to our country debatably than Trump. I mean, it's hard to say that right now, but uh, again, you know, Mitch McConnell has been in there for decades, creating the environment for Trump to come into power and then enabling all of the worst things that Trump has done. So. And now he's just trying to make nice with, he's going to try to make nice with Biden and keep himself in in position to play in the future. Exactly. Um, And, but you know, who's not quietly talking to associates is, Liz Cheney, who's put out an entire statement calling for impeachment. Yeah. The third highest ranking Republican in the House says she will vote to impeach. It seems like there are a number of Republicans we'll see as we're recording this. I think there's going to be a lot more. Kevin McCarthy, a staunch Trump ally, while he has said he's not in favor of impeachment, he's been talking about censure, which that's not going to happen. But he's not going to lobby his caucus they're going to let their own conscience be their guide. So we'll see. So mealy-mouthed and weak sauce. Just weak sauce, all of them. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I'm, I, uh, Being a Californian uh, and a, a California-based activist, I'm really curious what happens after uh, redistricting to – Kevin McCarthy's district and any opportunities we have to get rid of him in 2022, I will be looking very closely at. Hmm. Threatening. You heard me. 
Watch out. Coming for you, Kevin McCarthy. Coming for that seat. I like it. (laughs) We talk about accountability. Right now, we're relying on Congress to hold the president accountable. We are going to have to hold Congress accountable in two years. So get ready, everybody. I know that our listeners are not going anywhere. They're up for it. So speaking of, well, we'll get to our to-do list because we have a really great one, which is such a stark contrast to the previous inauguration. And that's the National Day of Service for the inauguration that President-elect Biden and Vice President-elect Harris are are putting forward. But before we do that, what's your reason for hope in this chaotic week, Mariah? So my reason for hope this week is seeing all of the vaccination sites that are finally going online around the country. I live very close to Dodger Stadium, which for months and months has been a massive testing site. They have shut down testing there and have turned it into a massive vaccination site. And I know it's going to take months, but the sooner we can get back to normal, which will admittedly be a new normal, the sooner that we can get back to the important work that that we were all doing. And we everybody did a, an amazing job of doing it virtually as evidenced by what happened in November. Mm-hmm. But gosh, I miss you guys so much. I miss <laughs> seeing people. I, I miss my people and oh. I can't wait to see them again. And um, I miss sitting across the table from you while we're recording the podcast. I know. I miss seeing our guests and getting to to question them in person without a long, awkward pause. Um, yeah, no, I have a very dry sense of humor, so people don't get my jokes unless they can see my face. <laughs> it's a whole thing. We got to start doing this on video so everybody can see your face. Ah, maybe that will and, happen and for the, season two, little teaser. There we, there we go. <laughs> um, so uh, hope is on the horizon is my reason for hope. What is your reason for hope this week, Steve? My reason for hope, you know, when we're looking back on the Capitol and and we're looking at all this horrible footage, we're learning more about what happened inside. And I really want to highlight the heroes that miraculously kept members of Congress safe during this. I mean, when you look at what happened and the kind of security breach that happened, we're going to get all into that. And there's a lot of questions still need to be answered and a lot of people that need to be accountable for what happened. But you've got staffers that were barricading a door to keep people and their families safe. And that Capitol Police officer who led the crowd away from the Senate chambers where all the senators were. Eugene Goodman. Yes. I'm getting goosebumps. Think like seeing the video, remembering the video of how he did that. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You know, I mean, um, there was some real heroism and it's a miracle that more people didn't die and um, and that more damage wasn't done. So I want to highlight those heroes. Um, and, and I do, as tenuous as it is, and we're going to get into the interview um, more and talk about the threats we have over this next week and, and how we should be worried about those or not. But I just want to highlight those heroes who really saved lives at the Capitol last week. Did you hear, uh, and this is the last thing I'll say that I was, there's so much to be outraged about about that, but uh, some of the Republican members of Congress refused to wear face masks during the lockdown. I know. And thus making the lockdown a, a super spreader event. Now several members have contracted coronavirus, including 
cancer survivor, Bonnie Watson Coleman from New Jersey. Um, I hadn't heard about her. I, I did know that uh, Congresswoman Jayapal has tested positive. And now Speaker Pelosi has instituted fines for anyone who does not wear a mask on the floor moving forward. But yeah. <sighs> anyway, I, I, I digress. Let's focus on this week's to-do list because it's going to make us feel so good after all this horrible news. Yeah. I mean, it's all about working in our communities, right? And I think it's a fitting substitute for the inauguration since we can't all go in person. Um, Biden and Harris are, are putting forward a national day of service for the inauguration. It will celebrate and honor the spirit of Martin Luther King. It's on January 18th. MLK Day. MLK Day, right. The National Day of Service is an opportunity for all Americans to unite and serve at a time when the global pandemic calls on all of us to work together and support our communities. No matter where you are, you have an opportunity to give back and the agency to do so. Most volunteer activities only require an hour or two of your time, and all events will be virtual or socially distanced in accordance with CDC protocol. So we're going to put a link to this on our swingleft.org slash podcast page. It's on the bidenanaugural.org day dash of dash service. But that's hard to remember. So just go to swingleft.org slash podcast and we'll have the link on there. Great. Yeah, I think we should plan on, you know, just as many people who showed up to march in the Women's March four years ago, if we could get all of those folks to do something in their community on this one day together. And I know everybody does things year round, but showing a solidarity together, that would send a massive signal. And it would just be such a, you know, diametrically opposed to, to what we saw on Wednesday. It would be a powerful message to send. So powerful. God, I love that. Because I mean, marching sends a message, rallying sends a message, but actually working and, and making the lives of people in your community better while sending that message. I mean, it's, it's, that's amazing. So such a beautiful idea. Some of the stuff that they're talking about doing, creating cards for patients recovering from COVID, letter writing to seniors in nursing homes, knitting blankets for the homeless, virtual read alouds to students, filling a virtual shopping cart for a military family, stuff like that, contactless food or warm coat donations to a nonprofit, anything like that. There's lots of different examples, but um, uh, let's all be of service on the 18th and let's do this together. Um, you talked to Dr. Errol Southers about what happened in D.C. last week, but also how we can empower ourselves and our own communities moving forward in the fight against homegrown terrorism. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. It was uh, both a sobering conversation, but also a hopeful one. And um, his expertise is exactly what we need right now. Can't wait to listen. Some cars are comfy on the inside, but don't have power on the outside. And some cars have the horsepower, but none of the comfort. I used to think there weren't any cars that were the total package. But that all changed when I got my Honda SUV. It's rugged and sophisticated. And right now, Honda has deals on the entire Honda SUV lineup. CRV, HRV, Pilot, Passport, you name it. So if you're looking for a car that's the total package, the only place you'll find it is at your local Honda dealer. Hurry before they're all gone. 
Dr. Errol Southers is an expert in counterterrorism and the author of Homegrown Violent Extremism. He is the director of Homegrown Violent Extremist Studies and the director of the Safe Communities Institute at the University of Southern California. He's also the research area leader for countering violent extremism at the DHS, Department of Homeland Security. He is a former special agent of the FBI and was deputy director of Homeland Security under California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Dr. Southers, thank you so much. I'm so happy to have your expertise and perspective to share with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Let's jump right into it because we are in a very scary and unprecedented place in our country's history. As I mentioned in the intro, in 2013, you wrote a book called Homegrown Violent Extremism. Seven or eight years later, a violent mob stormed our capital. What did you lay out in your book that we should have listened to? And what are your thoughts about the insurrection last week? Well, thank you for referring to the book. And quite frankly, what I laid out in that book was the fact that anyone could be radicalized. Anyone could engage in violent extremism, especially in a country where extremism is a constitutionally protected right. Mm. So Radicalization is probably the most overused and misunderstood term that's out there. And I try to keep things simple when I say that it's when a person identifies, embraces, and engages in furthering an extremist ideology. What we have seen since the book in 2013 and even before then is in the last decade, more than 76% of the domestic terrorist attacks in the country have been perpetrated by the far right. Unfortunately, after 9-11, we got such a laser focus on Islamists Mm. and our national security, our homeland security, really had a laser sight on that. And, And what I would mention is that in 2009, the Department of Homeland Security's Intelligence and Analysis section laid out a report I happened to be President Obama's nominee at the time, and I wish I could have gotten to Secretary Napolitano before that report was produced, although it turned out to be extremely accurate. But the title was Right-Wing Extremism. And it was obviously poorly received by Speaker Boehner and the right. Mm -hmm. It talked about the coming threat of extremists being recruited from the ranks of our military returning from Iraq and Afghanistan because of their skill sets. So what she did was she withdrew the report. The unit was disbanded. The INA unit was disbanded. And she apologized uh, to Congress. And unfortunately, things happened later on that proved to be true. So what I laid out in the book is that we needed to be really concerned about a homegrown threat that could at the time have been Islamist as well as far right, but the overwhelming data of the last decade or more has been far right, and we were just ignoring it. Hmm. And how would you characterize what happened last week? Would you was it a coup, treason, sedition? Um, and and does that give you any indication of what to expect in these coming days? Well, first of all, you clearly have an act of terrorism, and by terrorism. Again, I like to keep things simple. Mm -hmm. The threat or use of violence. And then, of course, you've got to have a target. The target has to be a civilian audience. And by the way, in my book and in most of academia, civilians are deemed anyone who is not in the military. So police officers, law enforcement officials count as civilians. 
And you've got to have a political objective. And the political objective that day was in furtherance of shutting down the certification of the Electoral College. Um, and more importantly, an anti-government movement. So you've got terrorism. And I push back against the notion that we don't have enough laws because, by the way, we do have laws that address domestic terrorism. We did that in 2001 after we defined domestic terrorism in the United States Code. Hmm. So you've got that. You quite possibly, not being a constitutional lawyer, but what I will share with you is that you quite possibly have seditious conspiracy. And seditious conspiracy is 2384 of the United States Code. And everything that happened that day fulfills the elements of seditious conspiracy in terms of, again, shutting down the government, occupying property without the authority, causing the government's activities to cease, etc. All of those elements are fulfilled. And, you know, anytime you by force prevent, hinder or delay the execution of the laws of the United States or seize possessed property of the United States, contrary to the authority, you've got sedition. Mm-hmm. So. We have a number of issues here that put them into a whole different category with regards to how this is going to be handled going forward. But more importantly, the exiting president signed an executive order on June 21st of of this past summer in response to the civil unrest and because of social injustice, right. specifically stating how these kinds of incidents that occur on government property should be handled. And if I think we use that executive order, it's going to be quite interesting to see how people are prosecuted and sentenced. I believe it's a 10-year minimum. What, what was the statute that he – or it's not a statute, but what was his executive order? It was a 10-year uh, – possible 10-year maximum, but again, to the fullest extent of the law, and it was quite broad with regards to people that were damaging or vandalizing government properties, including monuments, statues, and facilities. So it's quite broad, but however, it's quite specific with regards to the activities. And the group last Wednesday checked all the boxes. Yeah. uh, You say the group. It it wasn't just one group that participated in this Trump rally and insurgency. There were white nationalist groups like the Proud Boys and Boogaloo Boys, QAnon-fueled conspiracy theorists, and Trump supporters that have been brainwashed like cult members by his lies. Uh, Mm. A recent poll stated that 45% of Republicans actually approve of the storming of the Capitol. Are are the Trump supporters who were there but didn't move into the Capitol, are they potential recruits to be further radicalized by these extremist groups? Well, you're absolutely right. And again, when I say group, I mean group in the broad sense right. as in the people that were present. But you're, you're correct. So let me just say what I will with an article that just came out in Foreign Policy where I, I made this statement already. This was like Charlottesville on steroids. And here's why I made that comment. Hmm. In Charlottesville, we had a whole collection of diverse groups with all due respect to them being on the right. They don't normally play together in a sandbox very well. Right. However, they coalesced that day with one objective in their Unite the Right rally. We had the same thing happen on January 6th. These are groups that have different ideologies. I mean, you could really have a problem if you decide to call a Klan member something other than what he is and you call him a proud boy or you call somebody from Patriot Front a member of the neo-Confederates. I mean, they are very proud of who they are and they want you to know that they are different. However, the objective that day, to your point, was largely anti-government, right-wing. And to answer your question, yes, 
we do have the potential for an incredible recruiting opportunity. That's why these things happen, by the way. And, you know, one of the things we take away from terrorism for many years is that it's not so much sometimes as how many people get killed is as how many people are watching what they do. Mm. So the one thing I'm going to say is, and I'm obviously with my background, I'm a staunch advocate for justice being served in the end. But if it's not served on these people who intimidated and threatened violence to prevent democracy from happening, this event's going to be celebrated without consequence by American extremist groups for generations to come. It'll be a trophy for them. And as you've probably seen in some of the social media outlets, it's being championed already as a success and the beginning of the Second Civil War. So they're championing it as that. Obviously, there need to be repercussions for these actions. They, everyone who was involved in this, um, including uh, Republican members of Congress, need to be held accountable for their actions. Fascism thrives on inaction. So do you see that happening now? And, uh, and what do you – do you feel like these are – incidents that can be contained at this point? Or do you think we're heading for a, a larger, more drawn out and violent, I, I don't know if it's a civil war or what you would call it, but um, yeah. is it going to get worse? Or do you think we can uh, we can abate this? Well, interesting question. And again, obviously, I do not ascribe to the accelerationist view of this beginning being the beginning of a second civil war. I will say this, for the folks that are saying we need to heal, there could be no healing without consequences. Right. And so I'm, I absolutely agree that people need to be held accountable. Do I think it's going to get worse? The fact that I'm, we're watching troops roll in and I'm listening to operational plans. I'm, I've, there was an FBI press conference today regarding their investigative efforts. You know, people haven't thought this out. And by that, I mean the insurrectionists who took part in this activity. People have already lost their jobs. Some people have gotten arrested. They've been placed on a no-fly list. Mm -hmm. The FBI said today, you can turn yourself in or we're going to come knock on your door. They really didn't think this out. It was a combination though, right? I mean, I think most of them didn't think it out. Some of them maybe got caught up in the mob, but there were definitely people, and we found reporting about this, that were planning this out as well. And to that point, they need to be prosecuted the same as we would anybody else trying to overthrow the United States government. And you're absolutely correct. There seem to be, and as, and as time goes on, and I'm another person who believes, and I'm, I've heard a lot of talk about this, let's hope it happens. We need a 9-11 style commission to look into this, independent of the government, to look into this, to find out what happened, who knew what, when did they know it, and how much did they know? Because obviously there was at least one group that went in, and you could tell by their dress, by their strategy and their tactics. They were obviously military trained right. and there was an agenda. Uh, you don't go into the Capitol building with zip with, with flex cuffs. You don't plan to take people hostage or take people into custody. Um, God knows how many weapons were on, on the scene that day in a district in this country that you're not supposed to open carry. So you're correct. And I am hoping that because of the operations I'm seeing start to get stood up in anticipation of this weekend and as well as the later on the inauguration, that that's going to be enough of a deterrent 
to anybody who's planning to engage further in either D.C. or the 50 state capitals in the country. Right. So, okay, so we've we've seen over the years images of law enforcement and military using racist symbols. And, of course, the blatant disparity in the response to this Capitol insurrection and the Black Lives Matter protest over this summer couldn't be clearer. Mm -hmm. More is coming out about off-duty law enforcement who were participants in the rally and – as you mentioned, uh, there was the FBI briefing, but there was um, a reporting that the FBI did have good info on the threats on the Capitol and briefed other agencies, yet obviously adequate security preparations were not taken. As a former FBI agent, do you think law enforcement has to some extent been infiltrated by these extremist groups? That's an easy question to answer. In 2006, the FBI produced a unfortunately heavily redacted document to the Congress documenting just that very point, Mm -hmm. that law enforcement in this country have been infiltrated by white supremacists and white nationalists. That document reared its head again about three months ago. I believe some of the redactions were removed, but only for the FBI to say they believe it's 10 times worse. So we have a huge problem in local law enforcement. I mean, let's look back at the history of the Bureau. When the FBI investigated the civil rights atrocities that occurred, it wasn't because they wanted to, it was because they had to. And quite often when they were in the South, largely investigating these matters, law enforcement, namely the sheriff's departments, were sheriffs on duty and Klan members off duty. Hmm, We have a problem. It is as bad as when you talk about the response to the Black Lives Matter movement activities this past summer. I'm one of two former FBI agents who testified a year and a half ago when the FBI decided to invent something called black identity extremism, where they believed that you had black nationalists who were targeting law enforcement. Again, the saying that we have in my university at my center is without data, you're just somebody with an opinion. 75% of the extremist shootings with police are being perpetrated by people who are on the far right. So we not only have an issue of law enforcement being infiltrated, we have an issue of law enforcement being targeted by the far right. And to the actions that took place last week, where you had barricades being removed, officers inviting people in, selfies being taken, reports of off-duty law enforcement and military using their ID to gain access. And I've been in the Capitol. A lot of times. You can get lost in the Capitol in about a half a minute if you don't know where to go. That they were able to identify and locate members of Congress who were on their list, even to the point of Representative Clyburn, who has an office that his name is not on the door and they found it, suggests a lot of planning and possibly, let's just say, co-opted people in the Capitol Police that as we investigate this need to be identified and need to be addressed. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the threats to capitals in all 50 states going on right now. Having said all of that, are you concerned about the our ability to keep everyone safe over the next week? I am concerned about that. I mean, let's face it. There are a few states in the country like California 
where we are not an open carry state. And if I don't know how much history your audience knows about that, but we can thank the Black Panther Party for that. And, and to your point about how groups are treated differently, we're a no carry state because of the Black Panther Party. In the 1960s, they did their homework and understood that you could carry a rifle or shotgun in public, and they did because they decided they were going to police the police. Well, that was an automatic threat. So between J. Edgar Hoover, who was director of the FBI, and Assemblymember Mulford, who was in the California legislature, and um, Governor Reagan, they got together and decided we're not going to have that happen. So in one afternoon, they passed the Mulford Act which removed the ability for California citizens to open carry. So we are an open carry state. I'm sorry, a non-open carry state, not necessarily because we're progressive, but because when African-Americans decided to be armed, it became a threat. Right. So having said that, there are other states that have the similar laws, but this has been something that's been brewing for some time with regards to state capitals being targeted. I mean, let's go back to March. State capitals started getting targeted under the guise of COVID stay-at-home orders, right? mask orders. Well, what we saw in the extremist violence community was this was a tremendous opportunity for them to recruit because what they did is they went to those state capitals and said, look at your government. It's become tyrannical. This is overreach. They can't tell you to wear a mask. They can't make you stay at home. They can't leave your kids out of the school districts. And so what we saw was a massive recruitment strategy under anti-government at the time, in addition to targeting the government, largely targeted Jews and Asians as being the reason that COVID was here in the first place. Mm, right. So we've seen this Help, brewing- Helped by the President Trump, of course. Of course, helped by the president. So since March, it has been a stack of dynamite that would t- kept piling up. And the match was the rally on the morning of January 6th outside the Capitol. So in your book, you outline community-based approaches that can reduce the risk of homegrown terrorism. A lot of our listeners are volunteers and activists and leaders in their own communities. So how can we help combat these threats in our own communities? Well, thank you again for referring to the book. Um, one of the things I want to mention is I, I described that process of, I call it mosaic of engagement. And it really involves a couple of things. First of all, in the, let's just say that someone does get radicalized and does become engaged. When we get people out of those movements and the groups that I work with, with Life After Hate and Parents for Peace, it's a community effort. It's a family effort. Mm-hmm. It's, if you will, almost akin to if those who wind up with challenges with drugs and alcohol. Um, right. It's difficult to move out of those kinds of challenges alone. So it's a community effort. The other thing that has to happen is the community has to decide we have a problem, we have a challenge, we have a threat. How are we going to deal with it? It takes people away from that government dependence and makes them responsible for their own destiny, understanding that they are empowered to do so. That's very important. Um, I work with a number of communities across the country, and the ones that have been successful are the ones that have decided, let's stop measuring the negatives. Let's stop measuring the drive-by shootings or the arrests or the stops. Let's measure the graduation from high school, the people who go on to college, the people who come back and start businesses, the people who run for public office. Those are the communities that tend to thrive because they take control of their own destiny. And that's really important. What's challenging here and dangerous here 
is that we see people who are setting up their own, you know, I was in the FBI in the 80s when we had compound battles with a whole collection of folks across the country from Whidbey Island to Ruby Ridge to Waco. Right. They decided, you know, we're going to have our own community and we're going to isolate ourselves. Well, their own communities meant their own little ethno state, white ethno state. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about communities who are diverse, communities that understand that the cultural diversity is a strength. And because of that strength, they can better their improvement in quality of life. And that's how it's going to be done. People have to understand that they really do have control and they can make a difference. Yeah, it's really a difficult conversation to have right now about uh, compassion for <laughs> people who are uh, who are doing these acts. And um, but I, I do I do try to think of it, especially when it comes to MAGA writ large. You know, Trump's cult followers as cult followers. Like if this was yes. a member of your family that was in a cult, uh, you would want to pull them out of that cult. You would want to um, to help them. And again, I, I agree with you 100%. There needs to be consequences uh, before we go to calls of unity. There needs to be accountability before we go to calls of unity. But I do think that there, uh, we all want to move on from this and, and, and come to a place where our communities feel safer and more connected. Agreed. How interesting that we used to be that beacon on the hill when we talk about something called democracy. Yeah. And we've lost our place. I have colleagues from around the world in the last several days from Africa, from France, from Germany that have contacted me and said, I cannot believe what I'm seeing. You were the country we looked up to. So if nothing else, Steve, this has demonstrated how fragile a democracy can be. And there are certain guardrails we thought that were in place by the Constitution that this president clearly demonstrated. They weren't even guardrails. <laughs> they were just right. clumps of grass. Right. So in repairing ourselves and healing ourselves, I think the one thing that's really important is that all of the things that have happened in the last four years where our governmental norms were destroyed – we need to address those issues immediately so it never happens again. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so <laughs> uh, it's a dark time. It's also a hopeful time because we have the trifecta and we can actually – we have the political will to do exactly what you just said is address these these uh, pivotal issues. We always end our interviews asking our guests what gives them hope for the future. I'll ask you – do you have hope that with this new administration and a heightened awareness uh, in public sentiment about these domestic terrorist groups that we can actually dismantle and prosecute these homegrown extremist groups? I do have hope. I think we have the political will. I think that if nothing else, I really applaud President-elect Biden for his careful selection of people to his cabinet thus far. Mm -hmm. That sends a huge message. He has a cabinet that looks like America. I think that he's going to be able to work with people at the federal level, and they're going to be able to work with people at the state level. The most important element of acknowledging that science needs to drive our response to COVID, other countries have done it where their leaders have taken control of what has to happen during the pandemic, and they don't have the infection rate or death rate that we do. Right. So the political will here is, as you mentioned, consequences. 
I think there need to be consequences for people who aided and abetted this administration's abuse of the Constitution for the last four years. And to me, those consequences come with voting them out of office. So I am optimistic. I'm really optimistic that we've seen a record number of people vote, a lot of young people voting. I get really excited when I see young people understand the process, engage in the process, and realize that they can influence the process. And so, yes, I am very optimistic about our future and being able to address what's happened already, being able to improve what could happen in the future because of the people that are getting engaged now. Well, Dr. Southers, I, again, I really appreciate your expertise and, and lending your time to us today. Uh, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. And, and I'll say what I say to everybody these days. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Thanks so much for a great interview, Steve. And thanks everyone for joining us today. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. That's right. Share your reasons for hope with us. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Share our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. We appreciate you so much being here with us. We'll be back with one more show before our hiatus. Again, that will be next Thursday after the inauguration. We'll see you with the new administration. If you're intrigued by the mysteries of the unknown, now you can investigate thousands on Discovery Plus. Stream exclusive originals plus a collection of favorites, all for just $4.99. Discovery Plus is the streaming home of paranormal, plus so much more. Start your free trial.